0: Hello, and thank you for joining me today on Geezers of Gear, episode number 70. This podcast is brought to you today by Elation Professional. This week's NAMM show in Anaheim is your first chance this year to check out some of Elation's latest innovations, the Smarty Max, an extreme output version of Elation's Smarty Hybrid with the same smart lamp technology, but nearly twice as bright and loaded with even more design features. The Fuse SFX, a new concept LED spot FX fixture designed for applications requiring a compact and powerful multi-purpose luminaire. And three new fixtures in Alation's Paladin series of versatile blinder strobe washlights. The Paladin Cube, Paladin Brick and Paladin Panel all with IP65 protection. You'll also be able to check out Alation's new brand of dependable atmospheric effects that were launched at LDI, Magmatic. Showing at NAM is a new water-based taser called Magma Prime, a high-volume compact snow machine called Crisp and Prisma, an advanced series of IP65-rated UV LED lighting. Obsidian Control Systems will have their NX series of lighting controllers, Running Onyx software and the new Dilos Pixel Composer. You'll find Elation at a string of upcoming shows this spring, including ISE in Amsterdam, the Halloween and Attraction Show in St. Louis, Expo Scene in Montreal, Nightclub and Bar in Vegas, and of course Pro Light and Sound in Frankfurt and USITT in early April. <music> Good morning, good evening, good day. Depends where you are, I guess. For me, it's morning, and it is Wednesday, and it's sunny and beautiful here in South Florida. I know it's not like that in many parts of the world right now, so I apologize to those in... uh, especially places like Western Canada, where I know it's been like minus 35 degrees. And I was talking to our Europe office this morning, uh, one of which is located in Poland, and it's not really that cold. So welcome, Geysers of Gear, episode 70. Who knew? Uh, We're rolling right along here. So Uh, It's going really well, loving doing this, and I appreciate so many people reaching out to me and telling me how much they love the episodes and love what we're doing and continue to support it. And also, we're really starting to get a lot of calls and emails and stuff from um, guests, from potential guests, people who are interested in being on the show. So we are already booked up all the way through February and loving life. And so today, right now, actually, this is the intro. And so we've got Benny Kirkham coming up in a little bit. But first, I wanted to talk about a few things. And we actually had on the intro, I had, uh, I had a really exciting intro planned. And then this morning, the wheels kind of came off because the main guest, which was the head of innovation for Osram, the gentleman responsible for uh, the stylos or responsible at least for the light engine and for that whole thing coming together and is very much responsible for, you know, sort of the direction of that technology um, and that group. And also, uh, you know, with all the um, variances going on with the laser and stuff. So... What prompted me to get him on, well, actually, we've been trying to get him on or I've been talking to him since even before LTI, but what really prompted me to get him on recently was a discussion that happened on Facebook started by Patrick Dearson talking about the overall variance and is there any liability to the designers who are using this product and if you're standing at the front of house and you're operating these lights are you potentially causing damage to people's eyes and so um, we had Alberto from Osram coming on today and I was actually bringing Patrick on as well to sort of uh, have that discussion and unfortunately Uh, Alberto from Osram is sick, so he had to cancel this morning just about an hour ago. He let me know that he was just not able to get on and talk for an hour. It was going to cause him damage to his throat or something. I don't know. But anyways, uh, first, hopefully you get better soon, Alberto. And secondly, we will have Alberto on within the next few weeks. He's going to reschedule based on his uh, travel schedule and stuff. So Sorry about that one, but um, I still had a few things I wanted to talk about. Starting with NAM this week, uh, which is really, uh, you know, I've been going to NAM for, I would say, early eighties. I think uh, I was probably nineteen the first time I went to NAM, so that's a hell a long time ago. And um, so, you know, back then it was a rock and roll guitar show and and musical instruments and stuff, but. Most recently, it's become a very important show for the sound and lighting industry. And um, also, as you know, the Parnellis are happening at NAM as well. They moved from LDI to NAM, and um, it's a very big thing. So I am not going to be at NAM this weekend. I had intended on going, um, but travel and just all kinds of other life got in the way, basically, and, and I'm not at NAM. But um, we are looking forward to having uh, some discussions in the next couple of weeks of some of the things that happened at NAM, some of the gear that was released there, uh, the Parnellis, of course. And uh, But yeah, this has become a much more important show for our industry. They now have a dedicated lighting and event technology hall at NAMM, um, which I know many of the manufacturers, myself included in the past, I didn't like when they did things like that because what would usually happen is they'd shove you off into a corner and people would have to try and find you. Like you became a destination site where people had to go looking for your booth in this weird little lighting hall that was in the basement somewhere in the back corner. And so it was pretty poorly... Um, the traffic was very bad compared to the rest of the show, which was, you know, had jammed aisles. So we liked being shoved into the center of a bunch of guitar booths and stuff, and people would just trip over you and and go, oh, lighting, what's this? And, um, but I know that the business has evolved a lot and has matured a lot, and so now, you have a lot of buyers and companies that are at NAMM in part, excuse me by the way, in part to do business with sound and lighting companies and so it's not such a, uh, an odd duck anymore and now uh, you know, you are getting the traffic that you deserve and stuff. So I don't think it's as big of an issue anymore. Anyway, uh, good luck to everyone who's going to NAMM this week and I hope it's a great show and I'm kind of sad that I'm not there. Um, new gear that I've tripped over. In the past uh, week or so, I noticed that one of our partners at Gearsource, AED out of Europe, has launched a new audio line. And I saw that coming when they came out with their own uh, uh, lighting brand. I thought shortly after we would see an audio brand. And so they've got a line of both stacked and flown array uh, speakers. Looks like some pretty cool stuff. Haven't seen nor heard it yet, just pictures um, but I do know uh, Glenn at AED and his team, and I'm sure it's going to be quality product. And these guys are becoming a much more significant, quote, distributor, I think, of product and manufacturer of product. And they're no longer, you know, just a rental company or a dealer. So um, watch for AED to continue making moves. I, I mean, for one, they're very well funded. They're very well managed. They're very disciplined. They're a very nice company. And I see them becoming an even bigger global powerhouse in the future. Uh DNB Audio or DNB uh, what's it called? DNB Electronic or Electrotech or something. Anyways, DNB, you guys all know who they are, has a new uh, sub that they've launched and a new A-series augmented array, which supposedly combines point source and line array. Don't even really uh, completely understand what that's all about, but um, hopefully we'll get somebody from DMB on soon to talk about what that is. And one of the other things that DNB has, uh, uh, I guess made notice of is that they've opened a new DNB training and demo facility in Los Angeles. So I'm sure that's going to be a pretty popular place. And uh, of course, DNB being a, a very big and very important line, uh, in audio speakers. So, another speaker company, DAS, this has aged me for sure because um, I remember in the early days at Trackman that um, DAS, DAS Audio, was working with us. We were their distributor or a distributor of DAS at the time, and they were brand new coming into the United States. And so now um, they are celebrating 25 years in the United States. So I now realize that was 25 years ago. Wow. And um, so good for them. I mean, I know that DAS today is not the company that they were back then when they were just a small, I believe they're Spanish, um, speaker manufacturer. But uh, now they're quite an important line array company. But anyways, that makes me feel a little bit old. And next on... uh, a lighting product that caught my eye and, and looks like a pretty cool product is this Robay, Robay Tetra 2 linear bar, um, which is, you know, sort of like uh, like a color blaze kind of thing, you know, a linear uh, fixture with 10 to 1 zoom. And they've got this patented multicolored flower uh, effects package, which looks pretty cool. And, I mean, it just looks to be a a really great psych or or wash fixture that can kind of create that sheets of light look. Um, And I'm positive you can control individual pixels. Uh, They are all homogenized, so you're not seeing RGB like you would in the old color blazes. Um, Just a really great-looking product uh, overall. So I'm sure like everything with Robay, it's going to turn to gold. Uh, you know, they seem to be hitting on all cylinders right now and everything works. And, um, last thing I wanted to kind of mention was that I read an article and I'm trying to find it right now, um, on PLSN that was about basically how to, uh, stay married on the road. And, um, just a really great topic and one that's very important to so many people in our industry, but you know, just basically how to manage that relationship um, while you are touring. And it's a very, very complicated thing because what you need to understand is, yes, it's hard for you. You're going out, you're missing your family, you're missing your wife, uh, you're out on the road, but what you don't understand is you're leaving at home all of those problems, all of those uh, tasks. You know, basically the wife is stuck doing all the shopping, all of the kids stuff, all of the dropping off at school, all of the soccer practices, etc. So it can be very frustrating. And in this article, uh, the author made some some fun of the fact that uh, uh, you know drop off time at the airport. Is what he was calling exit friction, and basically they would bas- they would schedule in their in their calendar a fight on the way to the airport because it was happening anyway. So they said, let's just plan for it, and so uh, they have exit friction and then entry friction. When you're coming back home, it's basically here. Here's all the problems. Let me throw them all in your lap, and another fight would ensue. But, you know, a very, very complicated task. And I know I've got some very good friends who have managed it incredibly well. And then I've got a lot of other friends who are unfortunately divorced or separated or whatever. And their marriage just couldn't survive, uh, you know, that, the road, the the traveling um, husband or wife. So, yeah, I mean, it's a very important topic and one that... Uh, I don't know, maybe we should talk about it in the future. Maybe I'll have a guest on to discuss it. So anyways, without uh, going on much further and rambling, which I'm doing right now, I would like to um, bring on Benny. And Benny was introduced to me by a gentleman who he works with a whole bunch, who's Peter Morse. Um, Benny is very widely known as a programmer, as one of the top, if not the top Lighting programmers out there right now who does just monster shows for everyone for all a lot of major LDS, Um, but he's also a a very uh, accomplished designer and director as well, and you know just a genuinely nice guy. And and when uh, Peter asked me to get him on the program, I approached him and he was instantly flattered and excited. And he says, "Wow, I've never been on a podcast, so he's pretty excited to come on." So without further ado, here you go, Benny Kirkham. Well, here we go. We have Mr. Benny Kirkham with us now. How you doing, Benny?
1: Doing pretty good this morning. It's about 7 a.m. out here in Vegas.
0: Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, it's funny because on the intro, we were supposed to have another Vegas guy who was Patrick Dearson. Um, we were going to have the, the head of... Uh, Innovation, I think, is his title for Osram, the guy who's behind this. I don't know if you've seen the Clay Packy Stylos, uh, the laser. Stylos, yeah. Stylos, yeah. Right. It's
1: uh, the whole new thing. Have you seen it up close?
0: I have, yeah. And so we were supposed to have the head of engineering, the head of innovation, whatever, um, on the program this morning. His name is Alberto, Italian guy. And uh, he had to call in sick. But Patrick was going to come with him because Patrick started a rather controversial and well-attended conversation on Facebook about the Stilos and about the, um, just the idea of the laser uh, source and the, uh, the associated variances and all of those things. And it got a little bit, uh, it got very interesting. So I thought it'd be fun to have Patrick on helping me sort of quiz the guy. And uh, so, well, we, I'm certainly interested. I didn't, I don't know anything about that Facebook post. Yeah, what, uh, what's the story? Well, really, it was just Patrick saying, "Hey, what do people think about this? Uh, you know, the 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 variants. How does it all work? You know, how can we use this in shows? Are we are we liable? And it just started a very interesting conversation. If you go to Facebook and just search for Patrick Dearson, I think he made the post public, so you'll be able to see it. And um, if you can't find it, uh, I'll connect with you on Facebook and I can send it to you. But um, it's a it's a really interesting conversation because there are actually a lot of designers and programmers who are saying, hey, you know, I'm sitting in front of house. I don't want to be responsible for blinding people with this thing. So, you know, I just don't want to use them. And so <clears throat> the sad yeah, thing is... Yeah, familiar
1: with the rules. There are some rather strict rules with those things.
0: But the thing is, as, as I understand it, and I don't want to go too far into it because I, I don't want to uh, misspeak, but from what I understand, it's so diffused because of the fact that it goes through this big fat lens and stuff and a series of lenses. It's so diffused that it, it's really no more harmful to your eyes than a Sharpie or any other uh, beam type of fixture. Um, and in some sense, a Sharpie could even be worse. So, um, you know, I don't know enough about it. And that's why I was really, really excited to have this guy on, because he's he's very much at the center of all discussions with these uh, FDA people or whoever it is who manages that process of, of having the laser variances and stuff. But... Um, but yeah, it was going to be a great conversation. But Patrick, of course, is also located in Vegas, so that would have been funny having uh, you know Vegas guys one right after the other. So yeah, I mean, he's a really intelligent guy who's dialed into a lot of that stuff as well. He is, yeah, uh,
1: yeah. But uh, what I understand, regardless of the actual harm that the that the light could do, that the rules are the rules, and you can only uh, you can only use them in a certain way, and so that's going to put a little bit of extra stress on. Um, on a designer or particularly a programmer who ends up in the middle of a lot of those situations where you've got, um, you know, somebody else's agenda and priorities on one side and you've got the designer's agendas and priorities on the other. And and you find yourself stuck in the middle. You have to walk that, that line a lot.
0: Well, when a company the size of Osram is trying to make money selling them and a company the size of PRG is trying to make money renting them, there's a lot of incentive there to get a deal done And I'm guessing they're going to somehow go and get... You know, like if you look at laser video projectors, for example, why are they not governed by the same variances? You know, because that's all it is. It's a video projector projector with a laser light source. And granted, they're not Mm -hmm. typically pointed at people's eyes, but there's no rule saying you can't. And so... Um, it's it's an interesting topic because I think there needs to be some broadening. You know, just like everything else, uh, gun rules and everything else, a lot of these laws were written in very early days of technology and made a lot of sense. When you fast forward them to 2019 or 2020 now, it, they don't make any sense anymore. And so I think that this fixture is going to find a loophole somewhere in the law or, or get one created because it's really it's not necessary, I don't believe, to have the same variances. I would not be afraid to stand in a room with, with Stilos fixtures, uh, you know, beaming out into the crowd or whatever. That wouldn't bother me. And if it doesn't bother me, then why should it bother the thousands of other people standing there? I don't know. So, and maybe I'm I wrong. I agree
1: 100%. The yeah. very first thing I did during the demo, uh, my good friend, George Masick, brought one by uh, the show that I was working on. And the very first thing I did when he powered it up is I passed my hand across it yeah. just to see if it felt like a Sharpie. See if and it cut your hand in there's, half? There's no difference. <laughs> I, I still have all 10 fingers. I'm happy nice, to say, nice. And uh, that, it, it was nothing. It was actually maybe even not as warm as passing your hand in front of a Sharpie.
0: Yeah, yeah, so uh, you know, I think there's more myth and legend than than reality there. I think it's a it's I think lasers as a light source is a very cool next step for where we're going in the evolution of lighting and stuff. Um, I want to see it happen, and I think it's great for some of the bigger shows and the air effects and all the cool things that are going on and. Uh, when you see these oh, things in beautiful. use, there's just no other fixture that can do what it does. And so exactly. it, I don't want to see it, you know, squeezed into some obscurity because you have to have these laser guys in lab coats standing around every time you want to use it. That that that'll kill the fixture and that'll kill the technology, yeah. too. You know, let's face it. I mean,
1: hopefully we don't end up there. I, I doubt we will. I'm with you. It, it seems like this, there's going to be a conversation and hopefully this gets worked out.
0: Yeah. I, so, I mean, it's a bummer. We were supposed to have this on this morning. And um, actually, it would have been really cool because it probably would have gone over the time of our intro, which is only 30 minutes. And therefore, you would have joined in on it as well. And so, you know, we could have had a bit of a free-for-all on the on the where, where are we going with this stelos thing. So, anyways, we are going to do it still, but it'll be in a couple weeks. He's traveling for the next couple weeks. So, I want to. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, so uh, you know, you and I don't really know each other, uh, which is not that surprising because although I was sort of at the at the center of the automated lighting business for a, a relatively lengthy period of time, that ended um, almost 20 years ago now. So, you know, I started GearSource I think in 2001 or two. And Mm -hmm. so since that time, I really haven't worked for an automated lighting manufacturer. And therefore, you know, I don't have the same relationships that I used to with the designers and the directors and the people out on the road and stuff. But um, in doing a little research on you and your career, and obviously you came to me through Peter Morse, who said, you've got to get Benny Benny on your program. He's (laughs) got to be on. So, um, but in doing some research, I mean, you have definitely... Uh, been involved with the who's who of shows and designers out there. And so far I can't find anyone who says, Yeah, Benny did a shitty job. You know, it just sounds like uh <laughs> you're you're a pretty well liked and trusted guy. So uh I do appreciate you taking the time to come and do this today and especially early in the morning uh in Las Vegas there. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah. So how do uh, you
1: And I'm really happy for you to do that background work so that I find out, you know, who my enemies are out there. (laughs) It doesn't sound like I have many.
0: Yeah, I haven't found any yet. uh, I haven't found any yet.
1: Oh, that's good to hear. I'm very happy
0: to hear that. How'd you get started? How'd you get into the business? And I will tell you, you know, there's a a pattern on on our uh, podcast where people generally are either a musician and um, just can't make it as a musician or didn't make it as a musician and they fall into lighting that way or they were a DJ um, and come into lighting. And I mean, these are specifically people who started sort of in quote our era, you know, in the sixties and seventies and eighties kind of thing. Um, I think more recently, there was a real career path for this. This this has almost become like a real job with, uh, college programs and that sort of thing. Exactly. Now people actually plan to be lighting guys or sound guys where in the past it was, uh, it was very much by accident.
1: Yeah. Can you imagine yeah. Can you imagine having this as part of your career plan?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, my background is that I uh, I have a complete and congenital inability to uh, to sing or dance, and Uh-oh. I found myself in a theater program where they insisted you uh, you do something useful for the theater, and uh, I was pretty hopeless. So the uh, the choreographer. Uh, asked me if I would be willing to uh, to come for a late night shift uh, at the theater and help him set up the lights for this production of um, of Evita that we were doing. We were the first amateur
0: production of Evita back in 1986, I think. And funnily, and, uh, and funnily, so- I read about this event and that you were actually there oh, for yeah. an audition. <clears throat> and uh, I guess your audition didn't go that well, so they went, yeah, maybe not, but how about you come over here and run the lights instead?
1: To say it didn't go well would be a massive understatement. <laughs> I was uh, I was pretty hopeless in every facet of uh, performance. Right. But the uh, that night, uh, I helped hang, I helped uh, circuit the lights, and I just uh, started to get really interested in the nuts and bolts of how this worked. And it was... Uh, It was just one of those moments uh, where the choreographer had to go off to take a phone call. The choreographer was also the lighting designer for the department. I've found that i work really well with choreographers since then because they really know movement and and what the stage ought to look like and what a feel of the stage ought
0: to be. Yeah, and timing, too, I guess. But uh, he went off to take a phone call, and I didn't
1: know any better as to stop working at that point. I said, well, I think I've got the gist of this. So I hung two more booms and focused them. Uh, the way that he had shown me how to focus the other uh, the other booms. And he came back and I said, well, I, I finished up what we were working on. You did. And uh, and I showed him what I'd done. And he just looked at it and, and made a couple of suggestions, made a couple of changes and said, you know, you might be good at this. That was the first time I'd really ever heard that I was good at something. Wow. And so I kind
0: of took that to heart. Uh, it's all It's all come from there. Jeez. So, you know, that's kind of unusual because obviously you were in theater thinking I'm going to be an actor or a dancer or a singer or something right and not in any yeah. way thinking I'm going to end up on the technical side sort of behind the scenes but as soon as you kind of tripped over that it just grabbed you and did it grab you do you think because in your mind you were a failure in the other side of it or did it grab you because it was just like wow literally the light came on
1: it was both. I got to yeah. be perfectly honest with you it was both. I was I was having serious second thoughts about working in theater. I I really loved the vibe, I loved the people, and I just didn't see a way forward. Everyone around me had all this dedication to what they were doing and and I just kept seeing uh I kept I kept seeing a, a lot of dead ends and I'm going, you know, I just don't see a future here. And then I discovered lighting and suddenly I had something that I could I could grasp my hands on and, uh, and actually accomplish something. And, and with that production that we did, I, I was able to see kind of the beauty of the music and the lighting coming together. And it, it, every new thing
0: I learned made me more excited about learning more new things. Right. And do you think it was like, <clears throat> do you think it was the the creative side of things or the technical side of things that you were, like were you more drawn to the creativity or the technical aspect of lighting?
1: You know, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, even to this day, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really, I'm really psyched about both. I, yeah. I really enjoy all of the new technical innovations and how that feeds into the creative and, uh, and just how creative demands and how people's imaginations of what is possible of what could be possible drives technical innovation as well. It's, it's not, they don't exist in a vacuum in my mind.
0: Right. So. And you can see that every year at LDI. Yeah, no kidding. So did you, I, I'm guessing, either left or graduated uh, school and moved on. And, and do you remember your first job? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was running a,
1: a Carbon Arc Super Trooper at an amusement park theater for about 4 25 an hour, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. And uh there was a there was a bunch of really good guys in that theater that all went on. I mean, uh George Macy got it, Clay Packy worked there. Um, uh, uh Stu Bennett is a really good front of house engineer. Uh he's worked for everybody, worked for Tom Petty for a long time, uh, worked with M and uh with me for a while. Uh, also, Perfect Circle uh, Stu's a great guy, wonderful front of house guy. And then uh, John Grubbs, Desert Entertainment out here in Las Vegas. It's just uh, David Grogan who works for Cirque. Uh, all those guys were all making the same really awful wages uh, in a little uh, theme park theater in the late '80s. It was and Six Flags, right? It was pretty cool to have a group of guys like that in one place. And you know, since then, just keeping up with each other has been kind of interesting.
0: Was that Six Flags?
1: That was Six Flags
0: out in Dallas. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's funny how... Uh, well, and then, you know, since then, I, like, I knew a whole bunch of guys who came through Disney. Um, mm-hmm. I, it, for a while, I think it was because theme parks were the ones who had the big budgets. And so if you really wanted to... Like, I know guys who worked at... Uh, I don't know if you remember, Disney had... Um, uh, what was it called? Pleasure Island, the the bunch of nightclubs Absolutely. that they had. And... You know there were big automated Light, lighting used rigs to
1: service uh, pleasure island
0: yeah so you had a Verilight rig in in mannequins that was rather exactly. you know huge for a nightclub especially and i i, I, I remember don't know if
1: you're aware there were three programmers for that club
0: yeah 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 no i was and they all had
1: their own show and their own setup it was amazing for them to just get a a creative platform like that to be able to to put those dance looks together and they, they'd rotate out who was running, uh, who was running which night. And they were almost like a featured DJ in and of themselves in there.
0: Well, and they were very accomplished guys. Like I can't remember (laughs) exactly who they were, but I knew them at the time. And you know, I was with Martin at the time. So I was up at Disney all the time and I did other venues, um, on pleasure Island because, you know, Verilite obviously had a lock on that one, but I had lighting in some of the other venues And uh, But we were always so envious of what was going on at Mannequins.
1: Mannequins had a pretty good-sized budget.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, again, that was the thing. Like, back then, I know a lot of guys who worked for Disney uh, and then Universal and other parks because, you know, they just had these enormous lighting budgets. But there were also, like, back then, they had the rules where, you know, you had to have short hair and no tattoos, no earrings, blah, blah, blah. So I think they've relaxed those rules since then, but, uh, but it's interesting uh, how that all started. So four twenty-five an hour, um, you know, obviously not a huge future in that. So where'd that go?
1: Well, uh,
0: our buddy George,
1: George Masek out of Clay Packy, uh, before he was at Clay Packy, when he was a, a humble student coming out of uh, Southern Methodist University, he went uh, and applied at Verilite, which was all of our dream at the time. Yeah, uh, to work for Verilite, they were the hometown heroes, and uh, and he got the job. I mean, we used to sneak into uh, Verilite's test bed. It was a club called Mistral, yeah, over at the Anatole Hotel in Dallas, and uh, that was their test bed for Vl ones. And we would sneak in there on fake IDs just to look at the Verilites because we thought that was all pretty cool. Yeah, wow, that's neat. And, uh, I guess that was, you know, Lindsay Glover and Tom Latrell and, uh, and those guys all in there running the lights at that time. You know, I don't know how they, how they worked out who was going to run what night in, in that club, but, uh, yeah, we'd go in there and, and check out, check out what they were doing. And that was all pretty amazing. Well, George got the job at VL and, uh, he was our recommendation for everybody who came out of that, uh, that, that six flags park. 2VL in in, in the subsequent years.
0: Wow. Hey, guys, look what I got going on over here. Come on over. So Well, we were all...
1: The the thing is about making shows happen, and we weren't Disney. We didn't have the kind of budget that Disney had. We were definitely Disney's poor cousin. But we were asked to pull off shows, and we had to do a lot of it with, I don't know, um, just... Making it happen, a lot of MacGyver tricks to pull these shows off, and so walking into into VL was uh, we we were people who were self learners. We we uh, we would take the information that was available to us and uh, and and just you know devour that information to try to to try to to make a show happen. And so VL was a good fit for all of us,
0: right? So you got there when early '90s. You got to Fairlight, yeah. Yeah.
1: 1990.
0: Oh. I've still got my first rejection letter hanging on my office wall here. That's funny. So you got rejected at first, yep. and then they I, eventually hired you.
1: Well, yeah, George recommended me for this job. They called me up, and I went in for an interview, and uh, And I thought, wow, this is really happening. This is going to happen. And uh, about a week later, I get a hand-typed letter from uh, the guy who ran the road department at the time, Arthur Smith, and uh, typed by Angela Hilton. And uh, they said, we well, thank you for your interest in Verilite. We don't have a job right now. commensurate with your talent and interest. Please keep us in mind in the future. It's on Verilite teal and silver stationery. And it's wow. hanging on my wall right now. I, I see it from where I'm sitting.
0: That's so cool.
1: And uh, I mean, cool now. Well, Not so cool back then. It's cool now. At the time, it was heartbreaking. But I, I decided to frame it to, uh, to remind myself to, to keep trying because I kept pestering them. And uh, about two or three weeks after that, they needed somebody. And I was fresh in their mind. And so they hired me.
0: Wow. What a cool story! And so, at the time, what their technology at the time was still VL ones, I guess, right?
1: No, the VL twos had come out in eighty seven. Oh, okay. And the fours, 1989. but the, all of that stuff was still really, uh, really early in uh, in its development, and so uh, they, they still, I believe, the ratio was uh, thirty lights
0: per technician, if you can believe that. So Jesus. 30 automated
1: lights required a technician, 60 lights requires
0: two technicians. Wow. Can you imagine that today yeah, with these rigs that have to five or six hundred light show? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it'd be some of these, uh, you know, EDM shows where they have six, 700, 500 lights, you know, it's like you'd have, yeah. uh, you know, you couldn't even get hotel accommodations for that many people.
1: Oh, you need your own catering.
0: It would be a mess. But back then that was that was what we dealt with
1: because the equipment did fail a lot. And it wasn't because it was bad equipment. It was just uh they didn't quite know uh how to design this stuff so that it you know, that the, the motors, the uh the stabilizers for the motors, all of that stuff. I used to take those things apart. I mean, I don't know how to take lights apart now, but I could still take a VL2 apart if you needed me to, or yeah. a four. I still kind of remember that technology and yeah. and the the way that they were built. We didn't think of them as as uh, crummy engineering. They were great engineering for the time. Yeah, but they hadn't learned the lessons yet in the early '90s that they know now of how to keep how, how to design things so that they're less likely to fail, and then how to build them so they're even less likely to fail.
0: Well, and even even just the the stepper motor technology and the lamp technology, all of that stuff had to kind of catch up. And you know, until it did, like <clears throat> you know, obviously in a lot of the earlier lights, heat was one of the big problems. And um, so, yeah, everybody wanted bigger, brighter, better lights. But if heat was devouring the guts of those lights, you know, you couldn't do much with the current lamp technology. So you kind of had to wait for the lamp manufacturers to catch up and the stepper motor manufacturers in Japan and eventually China to catch up. And yeah, yeah you know, because
1: uh, all of those things are true. And in addition, how we cool the lights. Yeah. Uh, I mean, things, people take things like cold mirrors and, uh, and heat sinks on the tail of a light for granted, but we didn't have any of that with the twos or the fours. That, that all started with the VL five. Yeah. And so it's just these little things, every step, Made us a little more reliable, as you say, a little faster, a little brighter, a little better.
0: You know, I just thought of something which I've never really thought about before, and I have no idea why. But you just mentioned the two came out in 1987 and the four in 1989. Why wasn't there no three?
1: There was a three. Uh-huh. Aha. There was, was a three. The three was built on the chassis of a VL2, so it was quite a large light. It had a big bulbous lens on the front. And it was an incandescent wash light. I don't know if you remember the color change mechanism from a four that had uh, pivoting dichroics, yeah. uh, cyan, magenta, and yellow. Of course, back then, uh, Verilite, for whatever reason, uh, ordered the colors cyan, yellow, magenta. And so they were backwards on the last two colors for, uh, for years until I think, oh gosh, not that it matters, but I think the 2500 was the first one that was... C-M-Y instead of C-Y-M. right? But uh, that was the 3. It was, the 3 had an incandescent source, as was the way with Verilite. They uh, they redesigned the dimmer, and it was only six times bigger than an actual dimmer, and it lived, uh, it was 250 watts, so it wasn't the brightest light in the world, but if you look on the old 1989 Pink Floyd tour, the, the big rain truss yeah. upstage, yeah. those are all the 3s.
0: Really? I don't know why, but I always assumed those were VL-5s, and the VL-5 wasn't even out yet, so... Uh, no, 5 wasn't out until the early 90s. Yeah. In fact, when I was on Floyd in 94,
1: the ring was all VL-4s. Interesting. And VL-4s had uh, an entire engineering refit, as I recall, just to make them reliable enough to be on that ring. I, those, those 4s were... Uh, a constant source of activity for me on that tour. So was the VL- moment with those lights.
0: Was the VL three just not a very popular fixture? Because I I just don't even remember it. Like it kind of fell out of my my mind, fell out of history for me.
1: <laughs> it wasn't the brightest thing. Yeah, they hadn't worked the bugs out of the color change mechanism yet, and uh, all of those chassis just got converted over to VL twos and the two B and the two C that followed that.
0: I see right cool. So a few years back, I think
1: at LDI, they put uh, a display up of every Verilite ever made. And uh, the three that would, whatever exemplar they still have of the three was, that uh, was hung as part of that. And the one and uh, the VLM and auto Trust, and a lot of things that most people wouldn't think of as being Verilite products. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was such an amazing company, uh, you know, back in the eighties and, And, uh, and much of the nineties as well. I, I don't think they've fared as well recently, but they've still got some cool innovations and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, welcome to the, the merge of technology and money. Right. So, right. Yeah. So you stayed, you stayed at Verilite for how long? 10 years? Uh,
1: yeah, I was with VO for 10 years and, uh, I left in the fall of 1999.
0: Okay. And that's when you started your own company, right? That's right. That's when I started Overnight Production. Back then, there was
1: there was a time right at the end there where they were uh, they, they were dismantling the full time road staff. We had a, a, a core crew. I mean, as you might imagine, it was specialized knowledge to be able to, to repair these lights and keep a light system running. And we had uh, a, a group of people who only fixed Verilites. I mean, that was fixed Verilites, loaded them in, loaded them out. That was our production crew pretty yeah. much at, at VL at the time. And uh, and so the idea was to start taking these people off of full-time, make them contractors, you know, kind of a late 90s outsourcing sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, we we could kind of see the writing on the wall at the time. And so we started taking... Uh, the I, I learned the whole hog, for example. You know, I I knew the artisan was kinda getting along in the two, so I started learning the whole hog. I uh, I did a few shows uh on a whole hog at that point. And you know, we uh we just transitioned away from uh, from that very like core team and uh, for gosh, I forgot where I was going with that, but um uh, well, that that was that was where we were at the time.
0: Yeah. So you started overnight production to do what?
1: Uh, to be at the time I was getting a lot of programming gigs right. and, uh, and I, I wanted to design and, and I just thought that I would need, uh, an entity to bill because it made just seem more legit to be billing as a company than as a, than as an individual. And as before I understood any of the tax advantages or, or any other advantages, liability advantages, so forth and so on of being, uh, of being a corporate entity. Right. I just, uh, I'd, I'd always liked the name. And since we worked overnight <laughs> and, uh, the next morning you'd have a show, that was, that was where the name came from.
0: Right. Right. And that's still your company name today, right?
1: That's still the company name today. I,
0: it's, I've added an LLC on the, on the back end of it a few years back. What were you before you were an LLC? Sole Prop. Oh, okay. Okay. Good move. And so, um, you you continued touring, of course, after leaving Verilite. You did some pretty spectacular tours. I think you went out with Aerosmith for a long time, didn't you?
1: I was working with Jim Chapman and Aerosmith for a really long time, eight years with those guys. And I uh, spent five years with the Dixie Chicks as lighting director and... Uh, of course, uh, back in the 90s, I've worked with with Peter on Michael Jackson, and uh, that was when I started working with, with Aerosmith. Just, uh, you know, you lose track of who all you worked with.
0: Was the Peter, uh, the Michael Jackson thing you did with Peter, was that the one that started in uh, in Prague? That was the one that started in Prague, yeah. So I was at that show. I, I uh, Because I was with Martin at the time, and we had... We had sold Obi a whole bunch of Martin stuff that you probably hate me for right now, because I'm sure it was all causing problems. (laughs) But um, uh, so I decided to come over for that opening show. And it was one of the coolest experiences and weirdest experiences of my um, my life in this business you know because it was just it was so surreal like where they took down that statue of Lenin and put up a statue of Michael Jackson on that hill uh, you know b- between the hotel and the and the field where the venue was um, and <clears throat> you know I, I guess my room was on the same side of the hotel as as Michael's room was in that hotel intercontinental and what so, did you think of that? <laughs> so the funny thing was, I was sharing a room with... Uh, I brought Tim Brennan, actually, from Cinema Services at the time. Oh, wow. I think he had... Maybe they had just sold to PRG. So Tim and I were sharing a room because we couldn't get two rooms, I think. And so I kept going over and opening the curtains like a little crack and waving out it. And you'd hear this crowd of like 30,000 people outside screaming, right? They thought I was Michael Jackson. And... uh it was just such a surreal, weird experience. And, you know, then I I went backstage and was introduced to Michael. And, uh, you know, he shook my hand and was so grateful that we had come all the way from America to see his show. And, you know, he was so grateful. And thank you so much and all this stuff, right? It was just such a cool moment. And then, you know, one of the scariest things was walking from the backstage area to front of house. And, you know, it was like... um, uh, uh, what was that show? Um, oh, Jesus. I can't remember the name of the friggin' movie. Anyways, we were holding up our laminates, you know, going, please, we're just trying to get back there. And people were trying to kill us because there was like 125,000 people and they'd been waiting forever to get that spot where they're standing right now. And they think you're trying to, you know, screw them out of their spot, but I'm going away. I'm going like further away back to the front of the house. And So I thought we were going to get trampled, and I'd never see my family again. Really, was what it came down to. But just are you
1: thinking of almost famous?
0: No, the the one with the two friggin' guys, um, where they were uh, they were going to see Aerosmith, and they're holding up their laminates. What the hell are they called? Oh, I'm losing my mind. Wayne's World. Yes, Wayne's World. (laughs) Yeah, where they're they're holding up their laminates, going, "We're with the band. We're with the band." And, uh, but you know, it was just such a, that show was just so wild and so bizarre. And, and, uh, watching it from front of house was just one of the coolest experiences ever for me.
1: Oh, the show was amazing, but the tour, uh, just uh, traveling with that group of people was, was its own surreal adventure. I'm sure it, um, so many things came out of, uh, out of that, out of that tour, the, um, some, some of the places that we had to set up the show, we, uh, we, we set up a show on that tour in, in Mumbai and there was a Cobra underneath the stage, which is not something you normally have to deal with on a production, not even a stadium production. No. But uh, our uh, pyro guy was setting up mortars under the stage um, concussions. And he said, he saw a snake go by. Well, Apparently, a cobra just looks like any other snake unless it's raising up in that classic pose. Yeah. So he came out and told the security guy, "Hey, a snake under the stage." Well, there's two kinds of security guys at that point at that venue in Mumbai. There was the guy with the long stick, and his training was if somebody gets close enough to hit with the stick, hit him with the stick. He's about a ten foot long stick. You know, and they, those guys would stand in long lines and they were a substitute for a barricade <laughs> because they would be in front of the stage. The crowd would search forward. You see these sticks going up and down and the crowd would come back. Jesus. Well, he asked one of the guys who had a, a bolt action rifle and the guy said, no problem. I'll take care of it. And walked under the stage with this rifle. And of course our pyro guy is going, there's a lot of pyro under there. Please be careful.
0: Oh my God. And the,
1: uh, the guy with a rifle, and shot the snake and dragged it back out. He says, oh, yes, a cobra, very dangerous. Oh, boy. And so I didn't send anybody under the stage to reset any lights that
0: night because I just didn't want to have to make that explanation to anyone's parents. Yeah, no kidding, huh? Wow. And weren't wasn't the gear traveling on, like, those Russian uh, entenage are they called? Yeah, Entonage, An 124 is for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, that whole thing was just crazy, crazy, crazy. So big. We and- had three worth of gear and those planes that we had rehearsed
1: in, um, in Southern California at, uh, Oh, what is the air force base out there? Is it Norton air force base in San Bernardino that used to be out there? The bomber uh, base. I don't know. No they idea. Landed those planes there and pulled them right up to the stage door. So if you can imagine you're in a giant hangar and this enormous, I mean, it's hard to describe just being at ground level and seeing the size of this thing, but it was the the height of a four or five story building pulling up to you and then the nose opens up and the way those uh russian cargo planes loaded was like a semi but it was like a semi that was 30 or 40 feet wide right so the gear just went the ramp into the thing and tipped up and stacked exactly like you'd pack a uh, exactly like you'd pack a truck Jesus. And all the while there's a a Russian loadmaster sitting there with a clipboard in one hand and a mason jar of vodka in the other hand
0: directing <laughs> the load and you're
1: going nothing could possibly go wrong yeah, in this situation.
0: That is wild. That is wild. And just, you know, again, I mean I remember at that particular show, the one in Prague where you know, the the road leading up to the venue was just lined up with buses from, you know, Germany and wherever. Like, they all had the name of the country on the side of the bus or whatever so that people could find their bus again. And I'm like, well, this is odd until I actually got in the venue, the field, and saw how many people it really was. I was, like, blown away. I'd never been to a show that size at the time. Uh, and, I again, I think it was 125,000 people, if I remember correctly. But, um, yeah, so I I would have met you, but obviously I don't remember. And But I think, uh, wasn't Arnold Sarami there as well? He certainly was. Arnold was our programmer on the Hog. Right. Yeah, because I knew Arnold, so I think I was kind of hanging and talking with him a bit and with Peter, of course. Um, but I, uh, I just, I guess I didn't know you at the time, so. Oh, well. Well, you know, I
1: was... I was pretty quiet. I was, I was trying to, to fade into the background when I was doing Michael Jackson, I had only programmed for a couple of years at that point. Yeah. I was, uh, I was still only a couple of years into programming the artists and I'd done a tour with boys to men at that point. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of the, uh, of the heavy hitters, uh, at VL at the time, remember we were a, a full-time bunch because Michael's previous tour had kind of stumbled and not really gone anywhere. It, uh, there there were a variety of issues that caused that to happen. A lot of people didn't think that this tour was going to actually mount up and go, and so the people who really would have been much more qualified to do that show uh, were were passing on it or were taking other projects, and so I was the name that came up, and uh, and my my good friend Jim Waits who had been the programmer for uh and had actually toured with michael back on the bad tour and he was my boss at the time at barrel and he had recommended me for that for that spot and i'll eternally be grateful for that because uh that was what put me in that seat wow i was probably far from the best choice uh to put there but i I i did my best to grow into that gig
0: well it seemed to go okay (laughs) <laughs> it looked good. I yeah, actually went yeah. back and watched it on YouTube, uh, you know, just a couple months ago. I was feeling nostalgic and, uh, and you know, it still looks good. Uh, obviously today's standards are much higher and bright, brighter lights and, and, uh, all kinds of things have changed, but, uh, it still looks great. It's, and you know, he was just really good back then still, you know, so. Absolutely unbelievable performer. He was, yeah. uh, He'd get out there and dance, dance his butt off for like
1: two hours, yeah, and then go back and watch the show and take notes on his performance, the band, the dancers, all yeah. of us uh, on the crew. He uh, he had an incredible work ethic.
0: Yeah, yeah, and he was he was a bit of a perfectionist too, right? Very much, very yeah. much so, but not never in a bad way. I don't I
1: don't remember him ever coming down on anyone. It was just we can we can all be better, and every day we. we'd we'd always try to make it, make the show better.
0: Yeah. So uh, along the way, you've also, so you've done a whole bunch of touring uh, acts. I, I definitely went through your your uh, CV and there's all kinds of incredible stuff on there, but you've done a bunch of theater slash Broadway stuff as well, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, well, do you remember the, the story began way back, you know, wanting to be in theater. And, and uh, of course, everybody thinks of theater, and then the, the pinnacle of that is Broadway. Right. Out of nowhere, I ended up doing, uh, I was working with Blue Man Group for years. I worked with Blue Man Group. They're a great bunch of creative folks. And uh, they hired Kevin Adams, who is just one of the most innovative designers on Broadway, to come in and do the new Blue Man show. And of course, he knocked it out of the park. The show looked incredible. It changed the whole way that Blue Man shows look, which had kind of fallen into a rut previous years. But he, uh,
0: isn't it just like a bunch of black he designed lights,
1: this show. <laughs> isn't blue man group, just no, a bunch of black no, lights, it's, but it's tricky. It's tricky. What kind of colors look good on blue painted skin and how, what kind of colors can you put around somebody who's got blue painted skin? Right. And then how do you, how do you make the rest of the space visually
0: interesting? It's, of course. Yeah. It's
1: a, it's a stickier challenge than you would think, honestly. Yeah. But no, no. I was, I was, I was being
0: silly cause I, I've seen the show and it's an incredible show. I've seen it. You know, probably I think I've seen it three times with sort of a ten-year break each time, so it just keeps evolving, right?
1: Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and it always does. Yeah. Uh, and all the blue men themselves and the directors, they they are always making that show fresh. And it's been pretty much the same show for thirty years, but they always manage to make it fresh. I just yeah. I admire that very much about them. Yeah. Well, Kevin came in at that show, and uh, and I worked with him as a programmer. I, I don't think he had ever worked with a programmer. Like we do in music, where a designer will give you a uh, like a rough idea of what they want the scene to feel like, and the programmer does a lot of the nuts and bolts. I think he was used to the the New York, you know, I I want you to do this light at this level, and we're going to need a focus here and a focus here, and a little bit more regimented just because that's the workflow in New York, right? And, and me coming in and actually throwing suggestions to him was, was maybe outside of his experience. And, and rather than, uh, rather than getting on me or or, or crushing me about it, he, uh, he enjoyed it and it became a really good working relationship. And, uh, and then he invited me to come up to New York and, uh, and do Hedwig of the Angry Inch with him when he was designing that show. That was unbelievable experience there. That was, uh, that was uh, something like I'd never even imagined just being able to work with people at that level and at that speed and you Neil know, Patrick Harris up on stage and putting together a show with, uh, with those kind of parameters was, uh, it was one of the coolest experiences
0: of my life. Doing when that. was that roughly?
1: Hedwig was maybe 2014, something oh, okay. like that.
0: Oh, relatively recently then five, six years ago.
1: Yeah. I, yeah. Uh,
0: I had never touched Broadway before that.
1: I wasn't a member of the IA before that. Right. I, I had a call from a producer, and uh, the producer said, well, uh, let me know you're local, and I'll make sure that your benefits get transferred and all the Byzantine ways in which they move uh, paper around and, and and make sure that the money goes into the right slot. And I replied back, I'm, I'm not a member of the IA. And there was this long pause on the other end, and to this guy's credit, he says, well, we're just going to have to fix that, aren't we? And by the end of the day, I was, uh, I was a member of the union. And I'm I, I always very flattered when people want me to be a part of their club. So I, I thought that was awesome. And yeah. uh, I'm still a proud union member today. I still carry my card.
0: Oh, wow. Cool. Cool. So did you, have you done any other Broadway work since? Or, or was that sort of one and done?
1: No, no. I, I got really into it. And uh, the, the very next year, Natasha Katz was kind enough to invite me out to Paris to do the out-of-town for uh, An American in Paris that she was designing. And we took that to Broadway. That won a Best Lighting Tony. Wow. And then since then, I've worked with Kevin again on uh, SpongeBob musical, which was a cool-looking show. And, uh, and then we just last year, we did uh, the Share musical. Huh. In Chicago, and then again in New York at the Neil Simon Theater, and that was very well received. That got nominated, but we didn't win anything.
0: Yeah, what a what a very uh, you know wide and diverse body of work. Because uh, you know, I know you also did some EDM stuff, um, or at least one show you did an Ultra, I think, with uh, with Lieberman, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Stephen called me up and asked me. How- for on one of those shows. I loved
1: doing it. I thought that was fantastic. It's a big crowd of people, a ton of energy. I'd do one
0: of those again in a second. It's just Yeah.
1: Yeah, know, EDM so shows the are same fun. Thing over and over
0: it's so much gear. Oh yeah, they're a black. Yeah. Um so, Mark Brickman, when when we had him on the podcast, Mark uh Mark said, you know, these EDM guys, they're doing it all wrong. And I said, Why, Mark? Oh, and, yeah? and he said, because you know, you got an audience full of people on on Molly and you're blasting them in the face with strobing white lights. You know, if I was on Molly, that's the last thing I'd want. And I went, you know, that's kind of a good point, really. (laughs) That's probably a pretty good point, you know. so I'd be uh,
1: interested to see what Mark would do with an EDM show. Yeah. He'd do something amazing, I'm sure. Oh,
0: I'm sure he would. I'm sure he would. But, you know, he, he kind of had a chance to with Coachella, uh, he had, uh, Neil Young at Coachella and the entire lighting rig was 16 follow spots. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think he, he, uh, wanted to kind of flip the bird and say, this is how we're going to do our show. So good on him. He's not a, make those bold choices. I, I love that about Mark. Yeah, no, he's an incredible guy. So um, so yeah wow so I mean not many designers that I know or directors programmers have that diverse uh, of a of a background or of a body of work where you're working everywhere from touring to to theater uh, and Broadway to uh, even some EDM stuff so that's pretty cool and you know really what I want to get into um, is like, so I, I've I've heard so many different people talk about the process of design and programming and everything, and you've got guys and girls who do it all themselves. So I'm a designer, programmer, director, and I do everything. Um, and then you've got people like Peter who would never program his own show, and who believes that each of those three is basically a separate role. And that the designer uh, is basically sort of shortchanging his, his client if he is, um, you know, trying to do too many things. If he's sitting at the board versus, you know, calling out the, the cues or the show, uh, he's, he's really not. He's doing a disservice to the show, I guess, is, is sort of his philosophy or mentality. And um, they all make sense, like all these different modes make sense, but you're kind of in the center of that whole universe. So like my first question is, what do you think of um, that sort of all in one role versus the split roles uh, when it comes to designer, director, programmer? Um, what's, what's your sort of frame of mind as that is, uh, uh, as it pertains to, you know, those roles?
1: It's, it's an interesting question. It's one that has, uh, it's kind of developed over the years because I know, um, those of us of a certain age remember when there were always two boards on the show There you had the guy running the conventional lighting, the pars and whatever, and calling the spots. And then you had the kid over here running the movers yep. and over the years, movers became cheaper. Uh, Park hands went out of style because they were labor intensive and power intensive, and you know a variety of reasons. And so you've got the one person. So now you got one person running this show. Why wouldn't that one person then consider themselves, you know, at least a candidate to be the designer for the show and the programmer as well, and and direct it. And and you know, I don't need anybody else. Right? I'll, I'll just do it all myself. And from my own point of view, I look at it as a as a left brain right brain thing, where uh, you got one person who should definitely be, uh, completely living in a right brain space. They need to be thinking only in terms of, uh, of creative and, and aesthetic notions. And then one person needs to actually bring those ideas and make them reality on the stage. And that person has got to be, uh, pushing buttons, thinking in terms of math uh, setting up presets, all of these things. And so that person is is, is largely living in a left-brain space, but they still got to be able to understand what the other person is saying and translate it. So that's that's the programmer's job. right? And to me, that's most efficient with two people, but Corey Fitzgerald. There's no arguing with the fact that Corey Fitzgerald exists, that he's brilliant at both aspects, and that he can program his own shows and do a great job at it. Right. Uh, you look at, uh, I'm not sure if you know, Evo Kwan, who's, um, who's, uh, Celine Dion's yes. designer.
0: Yeah. Evil Kwan. Yeah. I know him. He
1: programs his own stuff and does a great job of it. Yeah. So there are people who can do it. I can certainly design and program as well. I, but I'm with Peter. I think that at least from my own perspective, you get a better product out of two people working together. Two heads are better than one in that situation, but some people, they can do it.
0: So when you're, when you're, when you're programming, let's say with Peter or with anyone, but, um, are you thinking creatively at all or are you simply just putting the light exactly where you're being told it should go? It depends on the designer. Yeah. So, there will are, some are, designers uh, just say, make designers. it pretty? <laughs> and and then you've got to come and up some with a designers look to make say, it pretty? Well,
1: pretty is a vague word. Yeah. Uh, some designers say, I, I want this to feel uh, raw. I want this to feel uh, a, a little menacing. I want this to feel bombastic. Yeah. You know, I, I can work with adjectives. Ag- I, uh, give me adjectives anytime and I can, uh, I can help you get there. If you've got a uh, specific things you want, I picture a giant blue fan. I can give you a giant blue fan. A lot of times the roles aren't that rigid or I think in a perfect world, they, they shouldn't be that rigid because nobody's going to have all the ideas all the time. Right. And if you've got really good partnership, which I've been blessed to have with a lot of designers, then we can uh, we can throw the ball back and forth in those situations and together create something that's greater than what either one of us would have been able to individually.
0: But it seems to me though that you and and this is by no means demeaning your role at all, but you have to swallow your pride a little bit and accept or understand that it's his design, right? So you you don't want to be overthinking, I would guess.
1: Well, I think it depends on your perspective. If you look at it from the point of view that there's really only one way to get something done and there's one best look, then yeah, I guess you'd have to, um, you'd have to look at it as, um, uh, you're subsuming your own creative urge to, to this other person. Right. But the fact is there's, there's a lot of different ways to get, uh, to, to, to the finish point. And there's a lot of different finish points. You, um uh, you got uh, a designer who's got ideas, and and uh, and maybe you have ideas as well. And I'm lucky and blessed enough to work with a lot of designers that um, we throw the ball back and forth to each other. As uh, a designer will sometimes ask me, "Is you know is this approach better or is this approach better?" And my answer, more often than not, is they're both valid. We pick one, we take it to the end of of how far we can get with it. We we make it look as good as we can and it's either it's either a good endpoint or we go another route right but really if you're collaborating there's not a uh, a my way or your way struggle that needs to happen there it's uh it's more about making the best look that you can and your start point doesn't really matter you can you can go any number of routes right if, uh, sometimes I get handed a color that something's gotta be, it's like, okay, I can work with that color. Give me, uh, give me an adjective, give me bombastic, give me uh calming or, or, or something like that. I can work with any of those things. Uh, yeah. and so,
0: but it, if, uh, I, if, I trans- if I, if I, if I translate, if I translate brain, right brain thing. About. Absolutely. But translating this all into a business thing, like, you know, there's a reason I'm an entrepreneur and it's because I worked for other business owners And I was constantly frustrated. I was constantly second guessing everything they were doing. I was constantly thinking, God, if this were my business, I would do it this way instead. And so I would think as I I believe that probably what makes you such an amazing uh, director and programmer is because you are able to fully buy into whatever the designer's view or vision of something is, and you're augmenting and, and helping to uh, execute on that vision, you're not trying to one-up him and show that you know more than he does or whatever, right? And that's probably what's made you so successful in this role. That sort of an attitude. Well, there's,
1: there's absolutely nothing to be gained from getting into a fight if you're trying to create something. Mm-hmm. The The act of creation is enjoyable in and of itself, but if you've got, if you've got a designer programmer relationship where people trust each other, then you can feel perfectly free if, you know, just looking at the direction the designer's going, you say, you know, are you in love with that yellow? Do you think we're going to be able to build it further from here based on the fact that we've already, you know, pushed ourselves to 110% on Q3? Uh, there there are places you can go to where you're both in a good designer programmer relationship you're both steering each other down that path and you're arriving at a point where you've created something greater than either of you have created could have created individually i feel very strongly about that I yeah, mean, but... that's something i've been doing for for decades now of uh, of working closely with designers
0: and i like to think that i can make a very good designer show even better but ask cause, uh, let me let me you ask know, you a follow up question, Benny, and give me an honest answer here. So sometimes do you just wait yeah. for Peter to go to bed and then you fix it?
1: <laughs> Peter <laughs> is Peter is very open to uh, to me create because we we have to work on some of our shows at such a pace yeah. that a lot of times he'll say, Benny, cue this song, just right. cue the whole song, and then we'll come back to it and we'll polish it together because he's got a lot of trust. In me, I understand how he designs well enough that I can create a look that looks like a Peter Morse look. I can create a look that looks like a Kevin Adams look, or a right. uh, you know, name the designer that I've worked with a lot, and I can I can do an impersonation of them, and then they come back and and we polish it up, we make changes, we we move it, we move it forward.
0: So y- I think it's a it's your it never felt like a subsidiary um, role to me, but you're essentially programming their vision, not your vision.
1: Um, no, I think, I think it's, it's always been a collaboration. Okay. Uh, they're the ones that have to take responsibility for what ends up on stage. They have to take responsibility to the producer, to the artist, to whomever, but in the dark room, when, uh, when we're looking at a stage, you know, we're, we're queuing that, that number together. Right, 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 right.
0: Yeah, it's it's a very interesting relationship. It is. And I'm not talking about yours with Peter. I'm talking about just in general that programmer, you know, because you're not a – you're not like – in the early days of the Hog 2 for example a lot of programmers were young dj kind of kids you know they were they were young guys that were working in clubs or whatever and it just seemed that that was sort of a trend at the time <clears throat> we're not talking about that here we're talking about a very accomplished designer slash director slash programmer who you know could very well do any of these shows on his own without an uh, LD telling them where to point lights or how to cue songs or whatever, but you are working in collaboration, you know, with a great deal of mutual respect on their show. They're going to put their name on it. They're going to take responsibility for it, and it's a very interesting relationship. It's it's definitely a a very different, unusual dynamic that uh, I get it completely. Um, you know, like I said, i for me in business, I could never operate like that. Like, I, not anymore. I'm, I'm sort of unemployable at this point. I've gotten to a point where, <laughs> you know, I, I know enough to be dangerous, but I also know enough to maybe always question what somebody else is, is doing. Like, I would always, and, and even if I don't, uh, you know, say it, if I don't, you know, come right out and say, Hey, this is wrong. I think you could do it a better way. I would always be thinking it and that would make that job very frustrating for me. Right. So.
1: I understand what you're saying. The, uh, the the, the difference is to, to look at the ongoing process in such a way that and approach it in such a way that you're not looking for fault in order to, to one up somebody or to, to establish your ego as being superior. Yeah. But to look at whatever needs to be fixed for the purposes of making the final product that much better. Yeah. And that approaching it that way develops a lot of trust between designer and programmer. And some designers, I mean, not the ones at the top I've found, but a lot of designers uh, you know, maybe starting out, younger designers, they'll they'll be a little bit more insecure about that. Yeah. And they'll they'll need to, to cling to to direct and, and autocratic control. And that's
0: fine. You yeah. know,
1: you, you develop the trust over a time span that may be shorter. It may be long. And, uh, and I'm fine with it either way.
0: Yeah. No, it's interesting. It's a very interesting relationship. And it's, it's one that I know, uh, you know, again, I know for sure, Peter, uh, cherishes that relationship, not just with you, but with, with all of the programmer operators that, that he's worked with and, just absolutely would never try and take on their role, and nor could he at this point because now, the boards have become so complicated. Be fair, now. He says he was amazing on the AVO. Yeah. Okay. You know. Um, so, <laughs> <Talked coughs> although no one's the although no one's seen it, you know, so there's no witnesses to to uh, confirm that, right? So, I've got I've got a story for you. Uh oh. Shania Twain
1: at Caesar's Palace. We had uh, we had a I even forget what song it was, but there was a number uh, and we had all these um all these synchro there in that theater. I think they're still in there. And there was a point where he said, you know, rather than do an effect, maybe we could do like a bump button thing. And he was describing this beat that he had in mind for the bumps. And it wasn't tying in with any math in my head. And so I'm thinking, OK, Peter's got an idea about this and it's not going to conform to any ideas that I'm having right now. I said, Peter, you got to be the one to hit these bump buttons for the time code. And he just recoiled. He didn't want to, uh, to have anything to do with, with hitting a button. He didn't know which buttons to hit. Yeah, I said, don't worry, I'll set it up. It's going to be these four buttons right here. When you feel that the buttons need to be hit, you go for it. And, uh, so I ran time code on record. And so had you been able to see the Shania Twain show at Caesars Palace uh, a few years back, you would have seen some Peter Morse operation of a board just briefly uh, in the God. show. I'm sure it would have, it would have been a singular moment in that show for you. you go That's like, funny. there's the rest of the show. And then there's that, those yeah, bumps. From, those on, on the those out of time
0: flashes and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I thought you were going to say was. he, he hit the power button like or drumming something. drumming your fingers sort of. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, he's very good at what he does, but did you happen to listen to his podcast? Cause he told a very funny story on there about, uh, Madonna, um, when he okay. was first going to meet with Madonna and he was put, uh, she was in the studio, I think. And he, he was put into like a lounge or waiting room or something in the studio or conference room. And he was sitting there and there was some snacks on the table and he hadn't eaten lunch yet and he was starving. So he, um, he started snacking away at this snack mix, and he said it was terrible, but he was so hungry that he kept eating it. And Madonna comes in the room and puts her little dog on the floor and grabs the bowl of dog food off the table and hands it to <laughs> her dog. <laughs> and Peter's like, oh, shit. Whoops. <laughs> he has told me that story before. That's a funny He's one. He's got a lot of Madonna stories. Yeah, yeah. He told a few of them. You should listen to the podcast. You're going to like it. So um, Fair enough. You know, I, I mean, all I keep hearing from people is how you're, you know, a stud programmer. You're you are amazing on any console, blah, blah, blah. So how do you actually stay up on on the control technology? Like, I know where you're probably knee deep into the to the uh, GMA3 now where, um, you know, because they launched the software, what, about a month ago now, I guess, or a few weeks ago. And uh, at LDI, they launched the 1.0. Was it at LDI? It was actually a couple weeks after, I think, in December. Yeah.
1: Was it? Oh, well, I think that they released the on-PC version. I, I went to LDI, yeah. and, yeah, and they
0: had the console software there. Yeah, yeah, they were running right. it at LDI. This about time. Yeah, so, um, yeah. How, you know, do you actually program in time where you can learn a new console or a new software update or a new whatever, or do you just kind of learn it on the fly?
1: I learned, well, programming is programming. I teach classes and, um, and I've, I've come to the point of, uh, of kind of learning the Zen of this job after 35 years that you, uh, the, 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 essentials of programming are the same. Yeah. And, you know, not to get in big class on this podcast of, of, of what, of how to program, but going board to board really syntax is the only thing that's going to hang you up. Uh, I, I've programmed almost every console that people have programmed since since the 80s, and uh, that includes some pretty sketchy ones. But when it comes down to it, it's uh, you do a lot of the same things. There's a lot of the same mind tricks and uh, and organization in your head that 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 drives an efficient programming process. Right. I don't usually use as far as staying up with the latest bleeding edge stuff, I don't usually go for a lot of 1.0 software Uh, from being at Verilite and uh, and going through the 1.0 versions of the Virtuoso, which turned out to be a great board, but was more than a little shaky in the 1.0 version. Yeah, I, I kind of resolved. To, uh, to 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 wait a bit to be to be calm and uh, and peaceful and and not really jump on that first version of software. I'm definitely got my ear to the ground when it comes to the new MA software. They're doing some really really interesting things that are, are kind of challenging how we organize data, uh, both going into the board and and the uh, the feedback coming back out of the board to the user. And so I'm really interested to see what the endpoint is on a lot of those uh, a lot of what they're what they're trying to do with it. They got some really smart guys working on that, and yeah. uh, and I'm I'm just seeing what the next version looks like when they, you know, they when they fully implemented a lot of the features uh, that that I feel are necessary to to actually put a show on a stage, and and we got a really stable version. I'm uh, I'm going to be really interested to jump in on that. And in the meantime, the MA2 is a is a wonderful platform. Um, yep. Uh, up, up at TC, they' they've they've really built a, a wonderful theater platform in the Eos, and uh, I'm always happy to run those. And uh, you know right now, those to me are the are the two uh, big big show type of boards where you can feel totally confident uh, walking into a room and having either one of those boards uh, to look at. i'm I'm afraid that I never really, uh, the hog Four, I never really had an opportunity to learn it or to use it because uh, none of the shows that I had really uh, really took, made use of that. I, I would have liked to have learned it to see what they did with it um, moving forward from the, from the Hog 3, which I actually liked. Uh, I, I liked a lot of the features on the 3, and I would have liked to have learned the 4, but there was just never an opportunity.
0: Right. Yeah, well, and I guess it, it doesn't make much sense to try and fill your brain with every single console out there unless you actually have a need to, to use that console. So, uh, that makes sense. And, and I also understand what you're saying about the 1.0 software with, with the MA3. Um, and I guess it's sort of a balance or a, a trade-off of, you know, uh, reliability and, and just comfort versus, you know, a few new fancy features um, we actually had Glenn, uh, Glenn O'Donohue from MA lighting on the podcast a couple weeks ago, talking a little bit about the future and where it's all going with MA. And it sounds like there's some really, really crazy stuff coming up, uh, which is pretty cool. So, so it's exciting.
1: The previews of some of the things I've heard, uh, are just amazing. What, what yeah. they're planning to do with that board.
0: Yeah. So, what about lighting technology? What's what's like some of your favorite uh, sort of go-to technology? And I know there's going to be a lot of Verilite fixtures in there, but some of your favorite from the past and present, um, you know, without I, like I'm not trying to do an ad for any particular ma- uh, manufacturer or anything, but just curious, what 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 are your go-to sort of like? I I always have to have a sharpie to do a show. You know, the sharpies are sort of the foundation okay. of every one of my shows, kind of thing, right? <laughs> now, are you saying that or using that? As no, an no, example? I'm I'm using that as an example.
1: Okay, well, um, you know, I've never been a big um, company or, or, or brand cheerleader. I uh, I've got some some lights that I really do like. Uh, a, a lot of it's just about putting putting light as easily as possible onto the stage so you can focus on making the show great instead of just getting the thing lit. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan. The, the light, it's going to be boring. The uh, I, I like uh, a really well-designed profile automated instrument. I love uh, the, the Clay Packy Senius yeah. because when I'm doing a corporate show, that light has got the best color temperature, the best rendering it looks fantastic on camera. I love the seniors i love the uh uh well and then you know my second favorite the viper performance great yeah. light for the same purpose it is yeah uh and then as far as effects lights you know i uh i i do like the uh the the sharpies i have always um the point came out after the Sharpie and it does a few more tricks. It's a little bit more versatile. So I always preferred seeing a point because I can do that, that little skinny beam trick that, uh, that Sharpies do, but I can also zoom it out a little bit, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, do a wash on the stage or do an aerial. That's not necessarily that same look. So you get a, a few more looks out of it. It's a bit more of a Swiss army knife than, yeah. uh, than a Sharpie is. Yeah. And then, uh, washes that, uh, that Viper, uh, the Viper DX Wash is a really, really nice wash.
0: Yeah, but
1: every light you use is going to have you're going to have pluses and minuses with it. The Vipers are fantastic. They you lose a lot of intensity when you throw color onto a Viper more so than uh, than some other lights. You know, some lights have got a source that's a little greenish. Or, or so when you're when you're planning a show and you're putting lights in the rig. Or when you've got a designer who's putting lights in the rig, and you're trying to anticipate problems that are going to come up, and and work around them before you get on site, you look at those sorts of uh, at those sorts of disadvantages to lights and advantages to lights, and you you plan ahead. It's like, okay, I can do this, I can do this. I'm going to have trouble making this happen. Maybe I should have a word with the designer about adding a couple more lights because you're trying to do some sort of a front wash on a stage, and you know that when you get to the extreme end of the zoom on this light or that light, that you're going to have an intensity drop off. So maybe you add a couple of more lights, you're able to zoom them down a little bit more in your, in your front wash, that right. kind of stuff. I mean, it's that, that sort of thing is all math. You know, there's the lights do a lot of the same things you, every now and then you get something groundbreaking, like what we were talking about earlier, the stilos right. from Steelers yeah. and that thing is really, <laughs> as you said, I hope it changes the industry because it's a really beautiful light
0: what about light sources do you prefer, uh, or lamp sources? Do you prefer still like a discharge lamp over an led, uh, source fixture or it doesn't matter?
1: Well, I mean, they're tools in the toolkit. It's, yeah. there's, there's, there's no, it's getting closer as far as, uh, as intensity on those, isn't it though? Yeah. Where, yeah. uh, the LEDs are getting closer and closer to the brightness.
0: Now there's some, Who would have uh, thought
1: back in the eighties that, the LEDs well, on our clock radios would would someday be that bright.
0: I mean the the there's new Elation stuff. I think it's called Proteus Max or something where it's uh like a nine hundred or nine hundred and fifty watt LED lamp source, bright as hell. Um uh Ayrton has and I'm not gonna remember all the fixture names, but I think it's the Diablo, which is super, super bright. Uh, it it seems like
1: GLP, GLP has got some, yeah, as
0: well. GLP has some amazing stuff. I know less about the GLP stuff, which means I probably should learn, but, um, but yeah, it just seems like you said, it's, it's definitely getting closer. And in some cases, you know, they've absolutely gotten there with intensity uh, and features and all kinds of things. And we're starting to see, you know, smaller, more incremental uh, nuances being offered in these fixtures where they're coming out with, you know, different lighter versions of the product or smaller or uh, better truck pack or whatever it is, like it's all coming down now to the efficiency and the ease of use of some of these fixtures, which is a good thing. You know, it's coming back to how do we make it easier to execute a show with the fixture as opposed to just getting bigger and bigger. Like I remember for a period of time there, uh, between Martin and high-end and Clay Packy, everybody's fixtures were getting bigger. And like the the high-end uh, X-Spot, I remember when that thing came out and I just looked at it and went, what? And it wasn't very bright, but it was massive. No, it was not very bright. Yeah, and it was huge. And It was big. Well, do you remember the Mac 3? Of course I do. Yeah, I was there. Ah, well. <laughs> well, no, actually, oh, I wasn't there Martin. For, no, no, time. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the... Um, uh, sorry, I'm going way back before even the Mac five hundred and three hundred is what you're about. No, there was a Mac. What the hell was it called? Mac twelve hundred, I think it was called. Before we had those on Michael Jackson. Correct. Were our shin lights on Michael Jackson? Correct. I think they were actually, and they they caught fire. I mean, they were. We were having so many. Oh yeah, because it was Michael Jackson where we were having the shutters melting. Um, because if you, if you close the shutter and left it closed for too long, because of where that lamp focused, it focused and burned a hole right through the shutters. And so we were having huge problems with that one on Michael Jackson. I remember, uh, yeah, God, I forgot you used those on Michael Jackson. So, but those things were massive. And so now everybody's gotten a little more sensible again and the fixtures are getting smaller again. But like, do you, do you have manufacturers come out and do demos and stuff so that you're up on all of the new technology or do you just make sure to get out to trade shows?
1: No, no, I get, uh, I get demos all the time. Um, I try to maintain really good relationships with, uh, with my friends who are, uh, who are working for manufacturers. Yeah. And so if I've got, if a designer has a problem And I know the tool that can fix it. I can arrange to have that uh, that demo happen, you know, within 24 or 48 hours, so that we can (laughs) so that we can move fast to get that light integrated into the system.
0: Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you were talking about the big ones, though. Uh,
1: I wanted to talk about one unsung hero light that I've I've got an unreasonable love affair with. And it's the Mac Three Air Effects. That was a fantastic light, and really, there's nothing to equal it that's out right now. Even really, that was a wonderful. That light could. I mean, it wasn't something you'd want to use for a key light because the the field wasn't even. But that light was the light that you'd want to line twelve of them up behind your band. You could zoom them all the way out and create a bright wall of gobo patterns that was unbeatable, and then it could zoom down and create, you know, these really. Very bright beams. That was a, a just a wonderful light, and and nobody really, uh, none of the the rental houses really bought it in any quantity. I, I think Christie's had a bunch of them, and I uh, I still use them when when I can find them.
0: Well, dealer cost was, uh, on that, that was thing like, when was, that came out. Dealer on it was like twelve or thirteen grand or something. I mean, I think that's probably. Part of what prohibited that was that was that era for a little period of time there where nobody cared about prices and you know Verelite uh, VL three thousands were seventy five hundred dollars dealer and then Martin would come out one, with one that was seventy eight hundred dollars dealer and Verelite would come out with one that was eighty five hundred dealer and it just kept inching up and then all of a sudden this Mac three comes out at like twelve thousand I think it was and everybody just went, whoa, time out, (laughs) you know, like, so we're getting this light and we've still got to put it out. out, Sorry. Don't forget another unsung hero light that came out about
1: that time. And a similar price point was the, uh, the VL4000 beam wash. Now you're not going to find a lot of fans of the VL4000 spot out there for a lot of reasons. Right. The VL4000 beam was an amazing light. It was super versatile. It did a lot of stuff. I was just, I'll still use them any chance, anytime I get a chance to uh, to get my hands on. Yeah,
0: well, and the BI was another one that came out. You know that I think again, dealer was just under ten grand, like around ninety five hundred bucks or something. To me, like that's that's just where manufacturers are just getting a little bit irresponsible at that time. Where you know, like to me, I always cared about the rental companies. I always looked at the math. And I would sit there with a guy like David Milley at TLS or, or when Mike Cannon was running 4Wall or even Jerry Harris. I would sit down at a table with a notepad and a pencil and, okay, so you're renting it out at 150 a week and you know it's costing you this much to maintain it. It's costing this much labor to maintain it. It's this, 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 this. And I'd sit down and do that whole math pro- uh, problem with those business owners And we would come to some sort of a solution, whether it's, uh, you know, coming out with a lower priced fixture or finding a way to finance it over a longer period of time or whatever it was that would then make sense and make financial, you know, fiscal sense to that rental company. Because at the end of the day, if rental companies are losing money on your fixtures, you're not going to sell very many fixtures. And, you know, we come exactly from a right. background where you would buy IntelliBeams for $2,500 or $3,000, whatever cost was on them at the time. And you would rent it out for $150 or $200 a week for years, <laughs> you know. You'd pay for it three, four, five times over and then some. And then you'd still go out and sell it on the used market for 1500 bucks. So, um, you know... It, I think fiscal responsibility had to come back into the picture. And I think we've got a lot of really great fixtures out there now and a lot of really good value again. And I think Alations, one of the companies that's helped drive that. You know, Alation right now is, is a, a very big company who, uh, you know, makes some products that are priced really well. Um, Martin's gotten back into the game as far as pricing their fixtures uh, more appropriately um, Robe, of course, very strong, big, powerful company. So yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it has to make sense to the rental companies, right? So without a
1: doubt, without a doubt. But the, the other side of the equation is I don't ever see that money. And so I'm going to be requesting lights that are, you know, that look cool, that, that turn me on when I turn them on on stage. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's the other side of that. You know, I'm, I'm the kid in the candy store going, I want that.
0: But if the rental company comes and back to you and says, I don't have says, to pay the bills. Yeah. If the rental company comes back to you and says, Benny, I can hit your, your budget that you've got for this show. But instead of the Senius, would you take a, uh, a Martin Mac allure or a clay Packy or a whatever, uh, uh, high end, you know, Sola something or other. Um, And that's where, you know, that fiscal responsibility comes in, where everybody ends up happy because the rental company doesn't have to go out and buy new fixtures for $10,000 each. You get a great show out of it at the pricing that you want to hit, and and everyone's kind of sensible at that point, right? Absolutely. Potentially.
1: And we're all aware of those trade-offs. It's uh, a matter of, of... to be honest with you, and I should have mentioned the the, the high end solar something or others that you just mentioned. Yeah, really good lights. Yeah, and uh, and we all like those. The solar frames are really amazing, and yeah. the, the latest version of the solar frames in particular are very cool.
0: Well, the new but, one uh, that they yeah, just we're
1: all cognizant of that when the rental company comes back to us and they say, "Look, uh, we can make this happen, but we've got to swap out," especially with with a Christie's who who has you try to keep a very. Uh, narrow product range for, for their own reasons. Yeah. If they say, you know, uh, we'd love to get you these seniuses, but it's gonna, you know, we're going to blow the budgets. Can you take uh, Viper performances? The answer is always yes. Yeah. We, we're, we're going to get the same result on stage. It's got a different label on it. It's, it's, that part is not important and it's, it's nothing personal. We're, we're, we're trying to, to get to a finish line here.
0: Of course. Yeah. So what's, what's missing, it, you know, what hasn't been invented yet that, you would love to see invented you know that's a that's a really tough question
1: because uh my mindset is always to create things from the clay that i've got in front of me and uh i've never really put a lot of thought into inventing new clay i um i remember when um when verilite was working on the 3500 wash that uh george masick like I said, old friend goes back to the uh, to the theme park days. He called me up. We had a whole conversation about, you know, what do you guys want? And the the subject turned to the old telescans. And I'm sure you remember those. They were of a, course, yeah. a French uh, mirror light, and they had a huge mirror on them. Uh, the inside of them was just an enormous box. And the big selling point on those lights to me was the fact that the the beam aperture was Giant. I mean, these things. It wasn't coming from a tiny little point source on a lens. It was coming off of that mirror, at least a foot wide already, and and so that beam, that big fat beam, just looked so cool on stage. Yeah. And I told him about tell us and how cool that big fat beam was. And I said, and we want really, if if you're going to have a wheel, it can't. it's got to be like the old VL two wheels where color changes were abrupt. It was yeah. not just fast, it was shockingly abrupt. You're in one color, and then you're in the other one instantly. And the flash that you get between those two colors is uh, is something that's exciting, and I can use that. And uh, and he said, cool, went back to the engineers, and the result was that giant aperture on the VL 3500 wash, which yeah. I guess the light was a hit. They sold a bunch of them. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's really cool. It, that that we're able to have that kind of back and forth with manufacturers and talk to them about things and and everybody's probably got a story like that where yeah you know you have a conversation and then before you know it, you go hey yeah that, that came out of our
0: conversation but there's nothing missing from your toolbox that you're you're always just thinking God if only somebody would make one of these and I mean it could be a console it could I, be you know, a road case it could be anything three minutes after we hang up I'm I'm probably gonna uh, <laughs> I'm probably
1: gonna think of what uh, what it yeah. was you know what I think is is gonna really cool in the future is to be able to um, to design and develop ideas in a shared virtual space. Because right now we're, we're, we're one step away from that right now. We've, we've all got Dropbox. We've all got, uh, you know, endless conference calls to develop ideas and, and, and get to the point before we get on stage to where we have a good plan when we get there. But, to be able to actually share a space and create in a common space in yeah. virtual reality will be, I think, ma cloud a really seismic change. To to yeah. be there with everybody else and watch the trusses go into place and no, not there because you're blocking this balcony, two feet higher, yeah, two feet lower. Uh, this that needs to move forward. That's actually I'm amazed the number of problems you can solve I'm amazed there isn't one in that. I don't know if it's technology's not there yet, the software's not there yet, or just people aren't there yet.
0: Yeah, for but, sure.
1: Uh, I think that that's going to be a really yeah, big deal.
0: Yeah, for sure, technology is there because, I mean, collaborative cloud based software in every industry uh, exists. Whether you're talking like, I mean, albums are recorded like that now, where, you know, wow. the drummers in California, the guitar players in New York, the singers in London, and they're recording an album. And, you know, they don't even have to email files around anymore. It's all done collaboratively in the cloud. So, yeah, I mean, that's a great idea. If it hasn't been done, uh, you know, hopefully someone's listening and, and is, is going to go ahead and do something there. But, yeah, cool. So what about um, young programmers who are looking to come into the industry? Are, do you have any either formal or informal way of helping to mentor Guys or girls coming into the industry?
1: I have been really lucky to get to work with some some great young talent. Uh, I, I have some relationships with um, with some colleges. I, I work with uh, Ohio State, Mary Tarantino up there, and then here in Las Vegas, Brackley Freer is has been super dedicated to getting his people in touch with professionals, uh, mentoring, interning, uh, those sorts of things are are really valuable to move somebody out of a dry classroom environment and and put them where where things actually get done How do these decisions get made? How do these problems get solved? you know everything is not as as sterile as a classroom environment for that matter I think that that uh, that the v r idea we were just talking about would be an excellent educational idea as well to oh yeah you know put somebody into a situation and make your make your mistakes where they're cheap rather than where they're expensive
0: oh yeah. No, that's but, uh, that idea uh, is a great idea, and I again I'm amazed that it doesn't exist already. But you know, even from a teaching standpoint, can you imagine having students globally? You know, you've got a guy in Singapore, a guy in uh, uh, Greece, and you know, a girl in Brazil, and you know, people all over the world who are on a live class where you're designing a rig. You know, that kind of stuff
1: turns me on unbelievably. I, I I love being able to introduce introduce people to to those sorts of ideas. And uh, you know, what I've always wanted to do is a lot of teaching programs have, uh, have they have a, a theater in uh, in the college and the design students, and maybe there's 12, maybe there's 20 design students. They each get a show in that theater. Well, why would you not design shows in virtual space? Yeah. And be able to design 20 shows a year. How much better could you be if you were able to design And, you know, put on the show, but without having to build anything with wood and nails and actually focus lights, you do one or two of those a year as the infrastructure allows, but you're able to virtually design 20 of them and, and look at the problems and look at and be, uh, be critiqued on, on the problems that that were created and the challenges that were created within that virtual production. I just think that'd be cool as anything.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Well, um, I know we went a little over our time limit of an hour, uh, and you said there was no way I you wish. had enough information to fill an hour, but guess what? We could probably talk for another hour still. Uh, you know, first I said there
1: wasn't enough interesting information to fill an hour.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted to be nice. Uh, no, I appreciate it very much. I mean, you, you, uh, you obviously have done some incredible work and, and, uh, like I said, I can't find anyone who doesn't have rave reviews for you as well. So, um, Thanks for, for sharing information with us today. And, um, uh, you know, all the best, man.
1: Well, it's very nice to meet you, and I appreciate you having me on your show. Thank you
0: so much. Awesome. Thank you so much.